Good morning. My name is Ardalis Green, and this is Palm Sunday, the first day of what we call the Holy Week or Passion Week. If you like a map that may help you with this sermon, just lift up your hand. Our ushers want to pass these out to you. The, the first part of this sermon has to do with some geography. But this coming uh, Friday, we'll remember the cross on Good Friday, 6 o'clock here. Next Sunday, one week from now, we'll do Easter together, remembering the resurrection. And we're in the series of the book of Acts, and we're going to look at today at Acts chapter 13. Before we um, get there, I just want to take out the map you've been handed or are receiving. And as you look at your map, you'll see that there's um, the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea on the far eastern part, if you look on it, is a place called Antioch of Syria. This is a place that was devastated by the... Um, devastated by the earthquake that came about a month ago there. So Antioch became the place where the early church, um, there was, an, there was a uh, revival there. Jews and Gentiles coming to faith. And Saul and Barnabas were in this prayer meeting, worship gathering like this. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I've called them. So after they faced, fasted and prayed, they sent them off. If you look at your map, what they did was they sailed from Antioch of Syria to the little island of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is about 200 miles or so from the coast, and so they sailed there, and they came to the town of Salamis. That's the easternmost part of Cyprus. Apparently, for several months then, they traversed the island of 170 miles across, stopping in various towns, but the only noteworthy thing that happened there was in the, in the town of Paphos, there was a governor whose name was Sergius Paulus. And he wanted to hear the word of God. Remember how we said that we're looking for these opportunities, these open doors, and earning the right to be heard. So apparently, Paul and Barnabas built a relationship to him. He wanted to hear more about the word of God. But there was a sorcerer there. His name was Elamus. Now, Elamus was his, also known as Bar-Jesus, was trying to stop the governor from coming to faith. So Paul in the strongest words ever, said, you're a son of the devil, an enemy of all that's good, full of fraud and deceit, and he became blind. And then Sergius Paulus came to faith, and then Paul left the island of Cyprus. He left from Paphos, and if you look at your map again, he sailed north to the mainland, to a place called Perga, Italia. Now, in Perga, scholars believe that Paul himself contracted malaria, as he speaks about his thorn in the flesh, it could well have been malaria because he was very sick at Perga. The reason we know this is that Paul did not preach at Perga. He basically moved north to the mountains to recover from his illness. As you look at your map again, he's now 130 miles north up in a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And it's here where Paul's going to preach the first recorded sermon. Now we're ready to go to the scriptures. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 16. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship or fear God, listen to me. There was a sense of urgency and passion in Paul. He said, The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert, 
He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave the land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul. By the way, Saul is speaking of Saul. He was named after Saul. Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So now we come to Paul's sermon. And the first thing he addresses here in his sermon is that God sovereignly chose our fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did not choose God, but God chose them. Abram was an idol worshiper, a pagan, a Gentile, living in Mesopotamia. And God said to him, if you leave behind your land and your family and your gods, and you come to the land I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. To fatherless Abraham, the promise was given that he would be the father of a great nation. I will bless you, and the nations will be blessed through you. And the firstborn son, for son of promise, to Abraham was named Isaac. Now, Isaac was not the firstborn son. He was the son born to Abraham and Sarah, but he was the son of promise. God chose him. And then he had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob was the chosen one. So, God sovereignly chose our fathers. This would be, to an average Jew's, information they would already know. And secondly, God miraculously multiplied and prospered them in Egypt. God made our people to increase. When they went down to Egypt, remember Joseph went down, and then his family followed after him. There, initially, there were about 70 people living in Egypt of Israel. But by the time they left, 400 years later, there were about 2 to 3 million. Even the Egyptian midwives didn't obey Pharaoh's order to take the little baby boys. So they prospered in the land of Goshen. Their families increased. Their flocks increased. Even the Egyptians gave them wealth, gold and silver and clothing when they left. The third thing that um, Paul mentions in his sermon is God's deliverance. That God flexed his muscle and delivered Israel by, her, by his mighty power. Remember, down in Egypt, they were slaves. And they cried out to God, God, please deliver us from this bondage, from this oppression. And God said, I've heard your cries. I've seen your misery. And with an outstretched arm, I will deliver you from the land. Pharaoh was the most powerful man living on the earth at this time, with the most powerful army on the earth. But Pharaoh's power and Pharaoh's army was no match for God. God flexed his muscle and delivered his people. Fourth, God bountifully provided for them over 40 years. God showed them his great patience. Remember that God guided his people by a cloud by day and by fire by night. And they were hungry in that wilderness, and God gave them manna to eat, something like honey nut Cheerios. Every morning this new manna would come, and they would gather up the manna and eat their manna. And they were thirsty in the desert, 
And God made water to flow from a rock. Even their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out over those 40 years. But yet they grumbled and complained and murmured. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Why have you taken us out to this desert? They complained. They did not live by faith. Remember, they came to Kadesh Barnea, and they, Moses sent in the 12 spies. And two of them said, sure, we should take the land, but 10 says we can't do it. So God showed his patience for 40 years, and God completely destroyed the seven nations of the land. There were seven nations living in Canaan, but God would give them their inheritance. Joshua and his men would wield the sword, but God gave them the victory. And God told Joshua, he said, no one, no one of those seven nations will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. I will be with you, Joshua, so be strong and courageous. Sixth, God graciously gave them their inheritance. You see, it was called the promised land because God promised them a land flowing with milk and with honey, a land that would have streams and rivers, a land that would produce wheat and barley, a place where they could raise up their families. They would occupy houses they did not build. They would drink from wells they did not dig. They would eat from trees they did not plant. This was all a gift from a sovereign God to them. And all of this took, it says, 450 years. 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wilderness wandering, and 10 years of conquering the land, 450 years. And then God, number seven, mercifully gave them judges. God gave them judges up to the prophet Samuel. Under Joshua's leadership, you remember, the people worshiped the Lord. But there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. They began to blend in with the pagan culture. They began to drift away from their faith. They began to compromise. They made up their own rules. They decided what was right and wrong. And the last verse of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. The people became, they, they sinned against God, and they became slaves to their sin. And they cried out to God, please deliver us with supplications. And God sent judges, deliverers, like Gideon, Samson, Deborah, were judges, and delivered them from the oppression that the people put upon them. Number eight, God removed Saul, and replaced him with David. Saul, we're told by Samuel the prophet, was told that he was to completely wipe out the Amalekites. You know the story, 1 Samuel 15. But God gave Saul and the Israelites an astounding victory. But instead of wiping out the enemy, they spared King Agag and some of the best sheep and goats and cattle. And after the battle... Samuel came to Saul, and King Saul said, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel the prophet says, then what is this sound of sheep and goats and cattle I hear? Some of these sheep are going, bah. And some of these goats are going, nah. 
Some of these cattle are going, ooh. Say, what's the sound of all these animals I hear? And, so, and Saul said, we've kept the best sheep and goats and cattle to make a sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel said to him, let me tell you what the Lord has said to me. The Lord anointed you king. The Lord sent you out on a mission. You did not obey the Lord. To obey is better than to sacrifice. You are hereby rejected as king. So Saul now is removed from being king. And David, a man after his own heart, is raised up to be the king. And finally, God sent Jesus, one of David's descendants. You see, David, Jesus was in the long line of David's descendants. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He was of Abraham. You know, it's great to learn what God did in the Old Testament, but all of these things point to Jesus, what he'd do for us on the cross. God had a plan in history, and history is his story. God was moving. God was guiding. God was directing history up until Jesus. Look at verse now 23. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. You see, they knew the history of their land, but they did not know Jesus. They did not love Jesus. So what Paul is doing here in this sermon is taking them through what's familiar to them to tell them what has happened they don't know. He has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. And before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. All the people even up in Antioch knew about John the Baptist. And as John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am, I am not worthy to untie. He is saying, in essence, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In the ancient world, there were rules that governed the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. Rabbis, of course, had people that followed after them. And if you wanted to be a rabbi in that day, you didn't go to rabbinical school. You attached yourself to a rabbi. And they had rules for how the rabbis could treat their disciples. And some of the rabbis took advantage of their disciples, and so they set limits on what the rabbis could expect of their students. And one of the rules was, if the rabbi tells his disciple, hey, you, untie my sandals, he's gone too far. Disciples could say, no, I don't untie sandals. That's against the rule. So what John the Baptist was saying is, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. That's how great Jesus is. That's how small I am. I must decrease and he must increase. He's showing the greatness of Jesus Christ and the smallness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, but it says the rulers didn't. They were expecting somebody from 
a significant wealthy family. Perhaps somebody who was born in a place like Jerusalem. Perhaps somebody who would be like a military leader who would overthrow the Romans. So the rulers of that day didn't understand who Jesus was. So now we come to the gospel is our story, that Jesus is the culmination of all history. We spoke about Abraham earlier, and Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And God would test his faith. You remember, God would test his faith and say, offer up to me your son, your only son, Isaac. And so Abraham obeyed the Lord. He loaded up his donkey and as they traveled toward Mount Moriah, Isaac said, Father, I see the fire and I see the wood, but where is the lamb to be offered as a sacrifice? And Abram said, God himself will provide that lamb. And so they journeyed up the mountain together. And just before Abram was going to take the life of Isaac, he had bound him. There in the thicket was caught a ram. And God had provided the sacrifice. And 2,000 years later, on that very place we know as Calvary, outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus went to a cross. The Lamb of God, John would say, has come. And there he would offer himself as a sacrifice for mankind's sin. You see, he fulfilled all the prophecies. Look at verse number 29. It says, when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. The first thing that he's saying here is he fulfilled all the prophecies. The prophets predicted he'd be born of a virgin. The prophecy was fulfilled with Mary. The prophets predicted he'd be born in Bethlehem. The prophecy was fulfilled at his birth. The prophets predicted that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. And that prophecy was fulfilled. Rejoice, O daughters of Zion. Your king comes to you, humble, riding on a donkey. The prophets predicted he'd be pierced for our transgressions. The prophecy was fulfilled at the cross. The prophets predicted he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. The prophecy was fulfilled by Joseph of Arimathea, who gave up his tomb to bury Jesus. But he wouldn't stay there long, because the prophets predicted he'd conquer death on Easter morning, and the prophet, prophecy was fulfilled when he rose from the dead. Thirdly, they took him down from that tree, when Paul refers to the cross, he uses here the word tree. He died on a tree. And every Jew knew the scriptures that he that is hung on a tree is accursed of God. Paul would write in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law itself is the high standard of God, and no one besides Jesus had kept the whole law. The law shows us where we fall 
short. We need a Savior. So let's say you're pulled over for breaking the speed limit. You're driving 70 on Route 270. And you argue to the officer, you know, officer, I've kept the law many times in the past. At least 50 times I've kept the law. Or you could promise him and say, well, for the next 50 trips up 270, I'll keep the law. The officer knows you're a lawbreaker. And he smiles and says, sign here. Your conduct before and after does not cancel your sin. Adam was in a garden eating forbidden fruit. He knew the law, he broke it, and sin and death came into the world, and a curse was the consequence. Jesus on the cross reversed the curse. He paid the debt. He was redeeming us. So the work of the cross is finished and now complete. But God raised him from the dead, point four. The tomb was not the end of the story. Death could not keep him. Death could not hold him. Jesus has been raised up from the dead. Jesus himself had predicted his resurrection many times. Remember, Jesus said, destroy this temple. In three days, I will, rise, I will raise it up again. That's why they sealed the tomb. That's why they guarded the tomb. <laughs> That's why they put Roman soldiers outside the tomb. Because Jesus predicted, but no seal, no soldier could keep him in the grave. So this is what the apostles preached. Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah. The prophets predicted, predictions have been fulfilled. He was anointed by the Spirit, crucified on a tree outside Jerusalem, laid in a rich man's tomb, and he conquered death by rising up from the dead. And Jesus appeared to many witnesses. Point five. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to Mary in the garden. Jesus appeared to Peter beside the Sea of Galilee. And over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to 500 witnesses. And many were still alive when all this is written. So what now Paul is doing is he's bearing witness to the risen Jesus and to the gospel. So we come now to verse 38. This is what it says. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified by everything you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He's going to get out here the two great benefits of the Gospels. To the Hebrews, this blew their mind. The people at the synagogue honored the Ten Commandments and thought the Ten Commandments were the greatest word ever spoken to humanity. They tried to live up to the law. Many of those in the assembly that day believed that they would earn the favor of God by being circumcised on the eighth day, by trying to keep the law, by eating the Jewish diet, by attending the feast, that something we can do can get us saved. It's not about what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about us keeping the law. It's about Jesus himself keeping the law. You ask, what is this forgiveness? Forgiveness means letting go. 
Forgiveness means releasing the offender. Forgiveness may be the hardest thing you ever do in your lifetime. It's so much easier to talk about forgiveness than it is to practice forgiveness. So much of our suffering in this life is due to someone's sin. And forgiveness is hard because it fights against all the impulses of the flesh. Did you see how he hurt me? Why would I ever make myself vulnerable again? How could I possibly pretend to be okay with her? I'll never be able to trust him or her or them again. How could I ever forgive her? What voices do you hear that keep you from forgiving? Because forgiveness is so hard, God gives us great reasons to forgive. God himself took the initiative. He made the first move. We forgive others because God first forgave us. Ephesians says, be kind, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ has forgiven you. We had a huge debt toward God, and God nailed that debt to the cross. And when we forgive, we find freedom. Past wounds will periodically come to mind, making forgiveness feel to you, to me, impossible, unnatural. What seems natural to us when we're hurt is to dwell on the horrible things that others have done, rehearsing these wrongs, feeling our hate, planning our retaliation. So what is forgiveness? It is to surrender the right to hurt others in response to the way they've hurt us. Forgiveness is refusing to retaliate or hold bitterness for the ways that others have wounded us. Forgiveness is not saying the sin doesn't matter. Forgiveness is not approving what the person has done. Forgiveness itself does not always mean reconciliation. But where do we begin, brothers and sisters? For me, it begins like this. Honestly, Lord, I don't want to forgive them. Could you make me willing to forgive? I know you've forgiven all my sin, and anything I forgive will be small in comparison to what you've done for me. But what happens when I learn to forgive is I begin to see the wounds of the person who's hurt me, and those wounds don't diminish or justify or excuse the offense, but they soften my attitude toward the person. So I pray. Lord, help me not to dwell on the offense. Bring me to the cross. Bring me to the cross. Help me to forgive the person who has so deeply hurt me. And here's what happens. The hurt begins to flow out of me, and the love of Jesus begins to flow into me. The hurt begins to flow out of me, and the love of Jesus begins to flow in me. You see, forgiveness brings us to zero. We had a debt toward God, and Jesus paid that debt, and now the debt is forgiven. It's, love keeps no record of wrong suffered. But righteousness is what is given to me. It says here that what we could not be justified by, by keeping the law, God justifies. So what is justification? 
Simply put, to justify is to declare righteous. The story is told of a woman who was speeding in her state, and she was caught speeding. In that state, they immediately took her to traffic court. And she waited her turn, and a judge said, how do you plead concerning your crime? And she said, I'm guilty, Your Honor. And the judge says, I, dare, I hereby declare you guilty and impose upon you the highest penalty. And then the judge stepped down from the bench, took off his robe, paid her penalty, and hugged the woman. You see, the judge was her father. The question is, how can we be forgiven and justified? Somebody has to pay the penalty. It happens apart from law-keeping. We cannot earn justification through rule-keeping, through good works. Justification is made possible by the sacrificial death of Jesus. Justification is the free, gracious gift of God bestowed on those who receive by faith the sacrifice of Christ. You see, God himself is holy. We sang about that. God is righteous. In order for a sinful person like me to have a relationship with a righteous God, there has to be a huge change in me, you see. And I can't make myself righteous. So he who was righteous, namely Jesus, took on my sin at the cross. My sin is imputed to him. And then his righteousness is imputed to me by faith. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I have a new legal standing before God. God deems me righteous. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would teach the doctrine of justification. They teach that justification is a necessary component. Faith is a necessary component of justification, but not sufficient. So what is necessary to be justified? In order to be justified, a person must be baptized. There is grace given to a person through the sacrament of baptism. But if you commit a venial sin, you could lose your justification. But that's not the end of the story. The only path to get back your justification is penance. And if you do enough penance, then you can get your justification back. I've got a better deal. Jesus Christ went to a cross. Jesus Christ paid for your sins. I believe that I deserve to be at that cross. But somebody took my place. You see, on the cross, he was paying for my sin. So when I believe in him, I receive forgiveness. God pays my debt. But I also get a new legal standing justified before God. Justification is a gift. It's a declaration of righteousness. The judge declares you innocent and in right standing. The benefit of the cross, then, according to Paul, is forgiveness of sins. Has Jesus Christ forgiven you of your sin? And the second is justification, that you have a new standing before God, that God extends his grace to you by faith. Pray with me. Father, <clears throat> we're listening this morning to a sermon preached about 2,000 years ago in a little town of the city in Antioch, where we have Paul's first ever recorded sermon. But God, there's eternal truth here. There's something we all need to hear, that we all have made mistakes, we've all sinned, we've all chosen paths 
far from you, Lord. But by your spirit, you draw us to yourself. You raise up Jesus on a cross and you say, if you lift up Jesus, you will draw all men to yourself. This morning, our hearts are being drawn to Jesus and what he did for us. The enormous debt he paid. The price he paid. And the justification that he gave. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we now can have a relationship with you through Jesus. It's not about our baptism. It's not about our penance. It's really about our faith, about us repenting of our sins, of us choosing to follow, of being your children. So God, in the quietness of this space, if there's some work your spirit needs to do, there's something that needs to come to the surface in our life, a sin, we can't be good enough, Lord, to earn this. We can't be a good girl to earn God's forgiveness. We can't be a good guy. We have to believe that Jesus is the Savior. There's salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God. Father, we believe. We believe that we have sinned. We believe that Jesus is our substitute. We believe that he is our savior. God, we believe. Father, confirm this in our hearts. Help us to walk in your ways. Father, make us a people on mission to share others this precious good news. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Did the crowds that day understand who Jesus was? They said, Hosanna, which means save us. It's a beautiful thing to say to him, give him praise, rejoice, the king has come. But their understanding of the king would be someone to deliver them from the Romans. They didn't understand that he was going to go to a cross and offer himself as a substitute for their sin. He's going to come back to rule, but this mission was all about him becoming our savior. So they kind of missed the point. They celebrated, but missed the point of Palm Sunday. So I hope you get the point that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that he has taken our place, he's our substitute. And by believing in him, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the justification. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this exceedingly good news that you've entrusted to us. God, would you allow us to go into this world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything you've commanded us, realizing that, God, you are with us to the very end of this age. Father, make this a very beautiful week in our lives as we meditate on these truths, as we attend these worship services, as our hearts overflow with thankfulness to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you Friday.